0: Welcome to the Language for Leading podcast with the founder and CEO of the Business of Leading, Incorporated, Julian Sturton. Since the early 1990s, Julian has equipped leaders from across the globe with an operating system and real world set of tools that have improved relationships on all levels. And the work has meant real success in business and life for so many. Hello, I'm Jordan Rich. And as Julian Sturton often says, conversations are our means to get things done conversations inspire actions and form agreements until there's conversation nothing happens you've got the language for leading podcast and we're about to make things happen we are talking a lot these days you and me about the brain and how the brain is structured and in one of our early chats you talked about the key elements of the frontal cortex and the map of the brain, and why it matters, and where certain voices are in the brain, quote-unquote. Can we explore Mm -hmm. that together? Sure.
1: It had a lot to do with uh, the, the, the years after I got married, and my wife was actually pregnant with my son, and I started to get some serious back pain. And I tried the traditional methodologies to treat back pain, traditionally speaking, because I think I developed a very sense of protecting my own particular, whatever I knew about back pain. Mm -hmm. I wasn't willing to go beyond the convention of treating pains. So part of me is still very traditional. But uh, I was introduced to a gentleman called Dr. John Sarno, who was uh, then the head of the Rusk Institute of Orthopaedics at NYU Medical Center, and I'd heard a rumor about him, so I decided to get his book. His first book was called My Never Back Pain. He's since, in fact, written five other books. He's now, he recently passed away about five or six years ago. So I tried out the book. And then, of course, uh, my own uh, sense of not trusting people or anything outside of my own control, which you could see had a lot to do with my, my upbringing. It was while my wife was actually pregnant. We were on holiday in Martha's Vineyard. And um, I'd gone through the conventional path of having back surgery. I tried just about every kind of condition under conventional rules and regulations that we can actually delve into to get back pain resolved. And uh, while I was having this uh, traditional treatment, including back surgery, uh, I was still, part of me was somewhat interested in what I was reading about regarding John Sarno's book. The only reason I trusted him was he had some conventional background. Hmm. So that kind of conventional background kept me interested. He wasn't some wayward kind of person. Yeah, he was an MD. He was an MD. So I was, some part of me was interested. And it's that when I began to realize that maybe, maybe uh, there's something else that was taking part of what my own internal interpretation of this back pain. I'm sure everybody's experienced that there are ways in which we all make different interpretations when we've got physical ailments as well as psychological sure. ailments. Sure. Sure. So I think the physical ailment and my own interpretation give my background, we're on a sort of a collision course So going back to the experience where my wife was having my son, about to be born son, um, and after I'd had the back surgery, it was five months after the back surgery that the back pain came back only three times worse. So my conventional wisdom was flawed. I didn't know what to do. I remember lying on the side of the highway on I-95 with a serious condition, wondering what on earth am I now going to do? Oh my goodness. It was at that point that I decided to surrender my attachment to my conventional uh, misinterpreted wisdom and surrender into the John Sarno world. And that's when I went to take his classes, which was basically a lecture that he was providing for people and he was talking to an audience, usually of about 50 to 100 people, and he was explaining to them that the traditional experience of pain has not, nothing whatsoever to do with conventional treatment. He literally said, it is in the mind, and I'll explain it to you. Then, he, then I read up about his work and how far back I could find out about what he had made assessments So his practice, which became very, very popular with probably millions of people, it caught my interest. So I followed suit with it, and I played back the tapes of the recordings of his lectures, watched his videos, and lo and behold, my back pain went away. So it wasn't until much later on, this was at the time when my wife was giving birth to my son, why this is a connection between the work that I'm actually conducting. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. We were talking about the the structure of the brain and oh, yes. the study that you brought to bear on this. And now I understand why this becomes cogent because you had a personal run in with conventional versus non-conventional and you, you found out that there was another way to go. Right. So I would love to talk with you about two things that uh, you and I have talked about off air and that is in the brain and in the mind, the foreground versus the background thinking mm, concept. Because yeah. that was mind-blowing for me, no pun intended. Yes.
1: Well, because I don't have this built-in trust mechanism because of my strange upbringing, I literally do not have in my vocabulary the word trust. Right, But I've also developed a coping mechanism for the inability to trust. So another word which I don't have in my vocabulary is the word impossible. So if you combine those two together, I realized something that was akin to what it was like being brought up in the situation when I realized that my mother used to both argue and negotiate herself in and out of difficulties. She learned how to negotiate Mm -hmm. when she was in difficult situations. Remember, she couldn't have the same resources. That was supposed to have because our family ended up bankrupt right my father was in jail my mother had to get a job she had to bring in lodgers they had no money and all of this occurred within a matter of weeks so she realized that by her own nature she had to develop something that was more proficient rather than is there a book out there that's going to tell me how to subscribe to the conditions that I'm being uh, interfacing with. So while that's got to do with my upbringing, while I'm having this back pain, yes, mm-hmm. uh, I'm reading John Sano's concept. I did a lot of research because I don't trust, because I don't have it built into my uh, emotional, uh, physiological system. <laughs> so I did a lot of research far deeper than I think the John Sarno had done his research. So I used to read all of his, his notes that he studied different scientists to figure out what would allow him to challenge conventional medical treatment because he was very controversial at NYU Hospital, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when he's talking about the mind, he's also talking about what is it the source of pain, Well, his source of pain had to do with rage, not just anger, not just superficial conditions that we resonate with when we talk about anger. This is deep-rooted, the source of anger, which he referred to as rage. Of course, that made an interesting connection because guess what? My mother was enraged probably every single day that I ever knew my mother. Mm, And that
0: certainly bleeds into your life in every way.
1: Yes, and there were many circumstances. One of the circumstances I recall very, very, uh, it was in reality. I remember my mother taking us on holidays. She used to take us on holidays on her own because my parents became separated. So I remember saying one time she was driving us to North Wales on holiday, right, and we were all about, four five six and seven or eight years old all right my elder sister and my mother i remember these words coming out of her mouth i'm of two minds to throw you kids out of the back of the car if you don't stop messing around now what she was really saying is on the one hand i love you and adore you and dearly treasure you sure sure but the other side of me says if you don't stop Physically misbehaving, I'm going to stop the car and put you out. Well, she actually did stop the car one time. My elder sister did get out and walk the wrong way down the highway, which got a pissed off my mother. But after <laughs> hearing that from my mother and reading the experiences, right, of how we can overcome the source of pain, and the research that John Sano did, right, and how I had to realize that there's something to do with his concept that isn't just about satisfying and getting your uh, painful condition out of the way. I think it's got a lot to do with the interconnection between pain, rage, and all kinds of different assortments that I call uh, disagreements.
0: Well, the proof for you was that the pain went away after you adopted these these thought processes, correct? Yes.
1: Well, right. I went deeper and deeper in some of the research I made with John Sarno's work. There was a lady called Candice Pert who was a one of the most highly regarded uh, scholars at the National Institute of Mental Health. And her book was called Molecules of Emotion. So when I discovered what John Sanna had been discovering about these people, I went to deeper ground to find out what was the source of his research. So I found out about Candice Pert and the work she was doing. Her work was based upon her discovery about how to eliminate addictions. She's a molecular scientist. She was studying all these different uh, parts of how she could reverse addictions. But first of all, her work was being conducted in uh, vitro, which was basically in the laboratory. So I read her research. And I also uh, was doing a lot of work. This was later on while I was doing a lot of work with the practicing of the language of leading, yes? Mm. I was hired as a coach for all the top executives at Pfizer. There were a lot of things going on at the same time, which is realizing that, you're asking, the question, you're asking the question about background, foreground conversations, yeah, yeah. right? Of course, I'm studying what I'm working with in training and developing people to actually exercise an unusual ability to overcome difficulties. So I over the years, I built a practice to show people, rather like I showed myself how to overcome my own particular difficulties, yes, which is showing people through a particular system how they could actually confront difficulties. And most people don't like to confront difficulties.
0: Oh, no. The the idea is to avoid them.
1: Yeah. And so if you're working with a very conventional pharmaceutical company like Pfizer, right, of course, it's not as if you suddenly want to go and tell your boss you're having a difficult time. It doesn't happen in traditional society. Mm. So while this was going on, while I'm reading about my own particular physical ailments, my pain, and the research I'm doing that's been given to me by John Sarno, and I went deeper, Candice Pert had actually proven that her work in vitro, in a laboratory, could be put into practice. She was a very clever scholar. But the unfortunate situation was she had a boss who was taking advantage of her skill. Her boss, it's a gentleman called Sol Snyder, who happens to be the head of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins. Well, Julian happens to be very capable at calling people. I don't have any fears or concerns about reaching out to people because that was my own coping mechanism as a youngster. So I carried forward my ability to actually talk to people because I've got no reservations or credentials to have to prove. And I think that's a big problem with people in society now. They can get two degrees, three PhDs, and speak 16 languages, but it's not necessarily going to give them courage for their own convictions.
0: So you called who?
1: So I called Sol Snyder. I called her boss. I called Candace <laughs> Pert's boss.
0: And what did you have to and say? And I
1: introduced him to what I was doing for a living. I just I was very blatant about exactly what I did for a living. And I want you to know exactly what on earth was the motivation for him to take the credit from Candice Perk. Because him, his team of scientists were awarded the Lask Award, which you may not have heard of. It's actually equivalent of the Oscars in the medical community. You can check that one out, the Lask Award. So Candice was furious. She was infuriated. So she made a programme of travelling around the world, pronouncing her particular skill... And while at the same time denouncing the people like Sol Snyder, who'd taken credit for her. Well, after Candice Pert passed away of a heart attack during the 80s, which is a very much a disappointing situation because I would love to have got to know Candice Perth, but she passed away. I even got to know a husband, actually, who started his own pharmaceutical company in Switzerland. But he wasn't anywhere near as interesting as Candice was. I'd love to admit her. Well, at the same time, I'm getting onto the phone and calling up Sol Snyder because I'm interested in the work he's doing and sharing with him what my ability to show people how they could overcome conditions. Well, guess what? The work I'm doing with Pfizer at the same time of calling up Sol Snyder was proving that, that the actual uh, manufacturing of antibiotics was becoming a very, very, very unfruitful industry.
0: We certainly know that now. Absolutely. We know that now. Yeah.
1: yeah. Because a large part of – well, ha- let me back up a bit. Pfizer started because they invented penicillin, which is the origination of antibiotics. Right, That was the big – and that was a coping mechanism of all classes because while they developed penicillin, right, it was, between, it was while the two world wars were going on. So, of course, it, they had to discover a system, a mechanism, call it a coping
0: mechanism, to deal with uh, the conditions that people were suffering injuries. It was a massive sea change when penicillin was introduced. It, it changed the battlefield picture completely.
1: Exactly,
0: yeah, I want to get back to um, the foreground and background before yes. we wrap up in this sure. episode, because there's a very simple way to define it, and it really made a lot of sense when you and I talked about this earlier. Uh, we do have those voices in our heads, most yes. people will admit that, but what did you come up with as a as a workable what, the source of that? Source, yeah. Well,
1: yeah, because one time I got to know Sol Snyder, who, by the way, happens to be the head of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins. I like contacting people who I think are at the top of their game. In fact, that's, that's my primary motive. If I'm going to build something that is somewhat distinct... And unlike any other conventional past-driven assertion, I like to talk to people at the top of a game. No person better to talk to someone who's the head of neuros at Johns Hopkins. So I remember one of my conversations I had with Sol, not so long ago, about two years ago, I said, Sol, what are you working on? Because remember, I'd done a lot of research and work with mm. Pfizer, realizing that what they were up against was... How could they overcome the disposition that they were actually finding out when they're finding out that the antibiotics didn't work? See, if you're an anti, if you're a, if you're a germ, if you're a bacteria, right, and you're being threatened, yes. You'll find, you'll cope. You'll cope. And how will you cope? <laughs> you'll go to the gymnasium and start working out and become a super bacteria. Yes. So the condition in those particular laboratories, so I discovered in working with Pfizer, gotten worse and worse and worse. I was realizing that they prove that bacteria talk to each other. They actually communicate. Now, it got even more exciting when I actually shared what I discovered with Pfizer. And I called up Sol Snyder I said, what are you working on? He said, "We've proven that neurons talk to themselves." Literally, and all the studies I did with Pfizer and with the study I did with Candice Perk's work, and my own particular work, my own upbringing, it made total integrative sense that we're realizing that inside of our heads, because I wanted to question what was being brought to the surface, was my strange situation where I used to find myself talking to myself as we all do but I didn't just trust that superficiality. I wanted to get to the root cause of how come human beings talk to themselves and does it make both neurological sense, now that I had what he was telling me and what about when I'm starting to talk to computer scientists, of course one realises that um, we have what I call an emotional binary system. So these are a number of parallels that are going on. So I'm talking to my dear friend, Philip Durkin in Oxford. I wanted to know what's at the source of people talking to themselves. And Philip Durkin who's now head of the Oxford English She said, you've got to talk to the philosophy department Oxford University. I said, okay. So having the courage of my own convictions, I roused around and rebelled around talking to her about it. I found out there's about 60 different faculty members at the psychology department. So they all kept referring me to a gentleman called Miles Bernier, yet, who happened to be the professor emeritus of ancient philosophy at Oxford University. I thought, ah, that's the kind of guy I want to get to talk to. Highest academic environment on the planet, Oxford University, and someone who's the professor emeritus of ancient philosophy. You can't go much deeper than that, <laughs> Faisal. <as> <laughs> would tell. say so. So I tracked him down because I wanted to get to the root cause while at the same time learning about the work I was doing with Pfizer. And then after Soul Snyder told me and my experience of my mother, I realized okay, if we talk to ourselves, how do we know that? So S- Miles Bernier told me to get a book called The Fear the Tetritus of Plato, It is the very last written Dialogue that Socrates ever had with anybody. And he explains it in very simple terminology. He says that basically when one is having a discussion, one is actually having a discussion silently to one's self, which made total sense to me because he said there are literally two people engaging in one particular dialogue. How he must have come up with, I have no idea. But that's why he was known as the godfather of philosophy. He discovered things that were not typically known to everyday people. He uses a good example, and this is why I use uh, in my work, there's a difference between thoughts and thinking. And that gave me a suspicious clue as to what would be the basis of how come people don't know exactly what they're dealing with when they're heading off into a future that hasn't happened. Because we protect our own history based upon recognizing thoughts. Thought is what I refer to as the internal dialogue that you're having with yourself. Mm. Of course, there must be something else that shows up as a coping mechanism. So when I talked to Sol Snyder in further detail, I got to know other neurological scientists. What I also discovered was that while we've had a memory just like a computer has a memory as basing a calculation upon which we calculate statistically past experiences so we are our brains are a computer in other words and it's made up of two parts and the most exciting thing i realized in discussing with soul snyder and other neuroscientists was that uh a coping mechanism showed up. This is to do with all the different people, anthropologists, Mm. zoologists, and all the other different scientists. It seems to be that there's a regulated pattern that has allowed this coping mechanism to take its own particular course. That particular neurologically regulated, documented pattern is what is now known as the frontal cortex. We discovered, according to scientists, that the frontal cortex started to show up about 35,000 years ago. And of course, if that's true, then the way in which our synapse have an electro has an electronic static way of communicating what goes on in our brains. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Uh, it's an internal dialogue that the synapses is able to allow our memory to actually become part of our ability to conduct ourselves when dealing with difficult scenarios. In other words, the frontal cortex evolved naturally to allow us as a migratory set of historical prehistoric people who seem to have migrated out of Africa almost at the same time as the frontal cortex started to show up. So we've now got this, this dual system going on, rather like a computer inside of our heads. And So we, I refer to it in a simplistic way as a background conversation, which is basically a memory put on speakerphone. Mm, yes? yes. While at the same time, we've developed a natural coping mechanism that I refer to as a frontal cortex. I've just referred to it as a foreground conversation. So we have these two... Uh, very compact, not always very compatible arrangements. Because remember, our memory has been around as long as we could remember. The frontal cortex hasn't been around for very long. So if a memory has had to cope with itself and take care of its own self-interest, we often refer to that as an ego. And we all know how difficult it is to deal with the contemptuousness of the ego. Indeed. It doesn't want to sort of lay down lightly and let itself get run over by a bus that's called the future. It <laughs> fights back.
0: Well, we've got a lot to cover here in future episodes, but that's a great sort of opening explanation to the the structure of the brain and how it really matters. Right. And 35,000 years goes by like that.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thank you, Julian. You're welcome. The conversation continues on the Language for Leading podcast with Julian Sturt, available on all podcast platforms. Remember to subscribe, download, rate, and review the show, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. The Language for Leading podcast, impactful conversation about fundamental principles that will grow your business and change your life for the better.